So today's lesson text comes from the Gospel according to Matthew, chapter 7, verses 7 through 12. Jesus speaking. Ask, and it will be given you. Search, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened unto you. For everyone who asks receives, and everyone who searches finds. And everyone who knocks, the door will be open. Is there any among you who, if your child asks for bread, will give a stone? Or if the child asks for a fish, will give a snake? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good things to those who ask him? And everything do to others as you would have them do to you. For this is the law and the prophets. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts may be an honor and a glory to you. Amen. So I agree with the old church commentators that Jesus's order here is not accidental. First, there is asking. Second, there is searching. And third, there is knocking at the door. The church father, Christyrostome, how's that for a two-bit name, said, imagine if you would a lame man, a beggar. Well, the first thing he must do is he must ask Christ to make him walk. Well, okay, Christ makes him walk. Now what? The Lord never gives us bad gifts, as this passage says. Well, what if he gets up and walks and goes the wrong way? Now, so after asking, after receiving, he has the second step. He must search out that new way to go now that he has his new legs. But suppose he finds himself on a narrow way. It's the right way to go. But he comes up and finally he finds himself standing at a gate. Jesus himself says, I am the gate in the Gospel of John. So what must the man do? He must knock. And the gospel, according to Luke, even adds here, he must knock impetuously in the middle of the night, begging his friend for bread. So first we must ask, no prayer has ever been answered that was not asked. Second, we must search. Sometimes it takes a bit of perseverance, a bit of looking for the answer. And third, finally, we must knock and gain entrance. This is a bit of a reversal of the way we typically think of things. Normally when we pray, the first order is to knock. We ask Jesus, let me in, give me admission. We hold up our good deeds before God as if we're going to sway him by them before we even get to asking. We try to build our case before we ever come to it. But now if we are truly beggars, if the Holy Spirit has truly convicted us of anything when it comes to the task of prayer, we are completely impotent. There is nothing ever within ourselves to whom we can bend God's will one way or the other. The only way prayer has any effect is by a blind appeal to the blood of Christ that is sufficient not only for our salvation, but for every petition. So first we ask. But that second step, seeking, is when it gets very, very difficult. Every pastor has a weak spot. 
We all have one particular thing that we have trouble with. Some have trouble with judgment. I'm not particularly nice, so I don't have a problem with that one. Some pastors have trouble with this, that, and the other thing. If I have to be completely honest with you, this section of verses is the thing I have the most trouble believing in the New Testament. I don't have trouble believing in the resurrection. Plain statistics, you could just randomly have it happen. But when we're bringing God into it, it is far more likely than unlikely. Men died to preach it. It has an entire church behind it for 2,000 years testifying to the fact. Well, the resurrection is not something I doubt. But we have 2,000 years of attrition on these verses. Now, some of it is I have the disadvantage of having had bad examples here. We tend to think of virtue as something that you learn by statements, and you have ethical departments in colleges that try to teach morality by use this mental abstraction or this mental abstraction. An author I was reading this week pointed out that's a completely false paradigm. We learn to be moral, to have virtue, by watching someone actually be virtuous. If you want to be a better man, if you want to be a better woman, follow the good example, and you will learn so much more than studying out of a textbook. In fact, in many ways, all of our ethical pronouncements are abstractions we do after the fact, having watched the good and contrasting them with the evil. Well, when it comes to prayer, we've had the disadvantage for the last 50 years of watching bad examples. And I get this terrible thing going on in my head that when it comes to the Lord providing in prayer, I am far more like Job than I am like Jesus. Job's bitter complaint, look at the fate of the innocent. It never seems to go well for them. We have good pastors, good Christians, good salt-of-the-earth folks that face foreclosures, who can't seem to get a church filled for whatever they try to do, who can't even get their own children to come home on Thanksgiving for dinner. And we have that other bit of the spirit of Job. Look at the wicked. We can't get the IRS to negotiate a couple hundred bucks on a tax bill. They get government bailouts. We struggle with diseases and sickness, and they are healthy and fat. So I come to this, and I must be honest, I have a spirit within me that feels like the song from, the eight, from about 1989. I feel like a toy soldier, step by step, heart to heart, we all fall down. And the battle just never stops. It seems as if we're in the hands of these different powers that just completely move through our lives. I can't grasp this by it being rational, is what I am trying to get at. Every rational bone in my body says this is not how the world works, which is what Jesus, that's why Jesus is summing up all of his teaching aspects here. What we get into the next couple weeks of the Sermon on the Mount will no longer be teaching. But this points out how we mislook at this Sermon on the Mount. I have been preaching the today aspects, the applicable aspects. 
But there's a confrontation here that Jesus is picking with us. Back in chapter 5, verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit. That's not rational. That's not how the world works, Jesus. Blessed are those who mourn. Do we not spend every single day of our life trying to avoid mourning? Blessed are the meek. So you mean those pushovers that all the evil people have been bullying their whole life? When it comes to this Sermon on the Mount, Jesus might as well say, blessed is the dork in high school. That's not reasonable to us. Jesus is here casting a vision, though. And one of the reasons the word is given to us is it doesn't just free us to believe. It frees us from what we believe. And just as the example of you have to learn morals by watching a virtuous person, you have to learn wisdom by watching a wise person, not just reading a bunch of Proverbs. We're at that same point here, and this is where Jesus is wrapping everything up, because this is the end. He's getting to the end of the sermon here. Jesus is saying, you have all these rational ideas of who God is. I confront it myself. I have these ideas that God doesn't particularly care for the poor people, and he seems to like the wealthy. But notice where Jesus boils this thing down to. The meek aren't blessed because that's the way the world sees it. We're not told to love our enemies because that's going to make us all just live in a happier, nicer place. We're told to do those things because that is who God is. And that is where we have to get on this one today. The reason we ask and the reason we seek and the reason we knock has nothing to do with ourselves, with any religiosity we put upon it. The reason we do that is in response to who God is as a person. And that is in complete juxtaposition to whatever we imagine God to be. There are a great many people in the United States and in the Western world particularly, who the reason they find atheism and so many things so attractive is they can't find the God that they want. But my friends, we are not here to preach the God that we want. We are here to preach the God that is. And that is where Jesus boils this down to in 7 verse 9. God has called himself a father. So Jesus asked them, are there any of the dads among you who, if your child asks for bread, will give him a stone? Even the most cold-hearted father, for the most part, will just say, no, you don't get to eat today. But to actually put deception into it and say, here, kid, bite it. Or if any of your child asks for a fish, will you give him a snake? Jesus is pointing out that in earthly fatherhood, that term that God has used to define himself, we see in humanity this forward shining of God's grace. But Jesus pushes it up one further in verse 11. If you then who are evil, he's not getting into a deep theological debate here, but he is saying even the best human being compared to God, just in contrast to God's goodness, instantly becomes evil. Just to give us the size of this bounty here. Well, if even we know how to give good gifts to our children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Jesus does not balance this on any sort of experiential basis. 
He does not balance this asking on any other passage. Well, he does, but he's not making his argument from logic here. He's not making his argument from, oh, this is how the atoms work, and he really doesn't care about so many of these arguments. Is there, is there not a God? What Christ is trying to drive home there, here, is that there is a God, and he is a Father. And we must stand on that in faith, because there is no other God. We must come with faith that if we ask he will give. If we seek, we will find. And if we knock, it will be opened unto us because that is the core of who God is. We can doubt it. We can come up with all sorts of other excuses as to why we think God will not allow us in, why he will not answer us. But the fact of the matter is, and the thing I have to confront every single person here on prayer is, God is a God who answers prayer. And he has thrown down the gauntlet even to me, Pastor Paul, that if I ask, I shall receive. If I seek, I shall find. And if I knock, it shall be opened unto us. Which really explains just how bad some of our examples are. Jesus is here told his disciples, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and all of its righteousness. But what do we ask for? What do we pray for? What do we spend 40 hours a work week searching for? We ask for personal riches. We ask for all those, and these things shall be added unto you stuff. How many of us have honestly spent five hours this week cultivating virtue? Two hours, five minutes. And how many of us have sought it with any of the same vigor, and perseverance that we've sought the negative forces in our life. All those times we went around looking for trouble. Well, how many times have we sat down this week and actually sought out good? And how many times have we even bothered to knock this week to just ask Jesus Christ, can we enter into you? Can we find you? It's very easy to be cynical about prayer and the power of prayer when you have never done it. It's very easy to say that perseverance in prayer will have nothing to show for itself when we have not persevered. Jesus is here kicking his disciples in the rump. You know who God is. You stand here because he has shown forth in himself that he will not even hold his own son back. We believe in the resurrection because all this has been vindicated. We preach the Bible because his words have been shown true, and here his promise is true. So ask, and it will be given you. Search, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened unto you. But even more, we have the promise. How much more your Father in heaven will give good things to those who ask. God is not going to give you a stone when you ask for bread. He's not going to slip in a poisonous snake when you ask for the fish. If you are asking for something inappropriate to your harm, God will not provide it, but he will provide what is good for us. Because let us reason, perhaps Christ was saying to some who might have heckled in the crowd, doesn't God give sunshine to the wicked too? Isn't one of our biggest Job complaints 
Doesn't that show who God is? That the wicked get bailouts. They don't even have to worry about food. How much more will he avenge those who rest upon his righteousness? How much more could he do for us? But we cannot say that the Lord does not answer prayer. We cannot say that it is of no use. We don't even try. The Lord cannot answer prayers that are not given. And the Lord, in shaping humanity in his image, in giving us his Holy Spirit, has thrown the gauntlet down and responsibility upon us. Being God's co-worker is also a charge. When Christ comes to live in us and we have the Holy Spirit, guess what? He's not going to move unless we do it. If it has fallen by God's eternal will for you to be the source of someone else's conversion, he ain't going to convert until you preach. And if his point is that someone has to be healed because you are going to preach for them, he will not heal them till you pray. We have been given the honor, but also the solemn duty to serve one another. We often ask, Lord, why do they go hungry? Well, the Lord has charged us. They have asked, and I've chosen you to give. We find a great many of our children and different people in our culture wandering around seeking to find some sort of truth, and they never seem to. And we ask, Lord, why is that? And that's because God has chosen us to point them upon the way. And there are so many who find themselves barred, barred even from the mercy of Christ himself, barred from the church by stupid acts of non-hospitality. And we ask, Lord, these people, they seem to knock. Why don't they get let in? And Jesus Christ says, have I not made you the doorman? It is a solemn but powerful duty to pray. May you discharge it well. And may the church triumph over all the forces of hell and everything else that come against her. Let us pray.